The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil, and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that, the, that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be with you all this morning. It's a privilege to be able to bring the word of God in Psalm 59 to you. So thank you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we cry out to you and we pray that you would help us this morning to be shaped into people who run to you, who run to your presence and desire your presence when trouble comes, when enemies come. Thank you for the songs we sang this morning, Lord, and the ways that they shape us to do this. I pray as we look at your word together, your scripture together, that we would, uh, that we would be drawn to you, that we would find our hope in you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. So David found himself in a truly desperate situation. He's a very young man at this point when he writes this psalm. He just married the daughter of Saul, who's the most powerful man in Israel. He's the king. His daughter, Michal, David just married. And, and, and now the very same king, his father-in-law, has dispatched a number of men, we don't know how many, to surround David's house that they might kill him. And I imagine that David, in this moment, thought back 
on the events leading up to this, the strangeness of what had happened. Just two chapters ago, this is in 1 Samuel 17, uh, David had defeated Goliath, the famous story where the young shepherd boy goes and defeats the champion of the Philistines and saves Israel from their enemies. David defeats Goliath, and then they're coming back into the city, and uh, uh, they would have kind of a victory march after defeating the Philistines. And as they come back into the city and this victory march is happening, the women from the city come out and they sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So Saul starts to get a little bit jealous. And there's this growing jealousy that Saul harbors towards David. And when they uh, continue, when you continue reading forward, Saul tries to, in his jealousy, pin David with a spear to the wall to kill him. But it becomes clear that the Lord is with David because the young boy is able to escape the mighty king. 1 Samuel 18, 12 says that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, with David, but had departed from Saul. And after this, Saul gives his daughter Michal to David to marry, but really it's another ploy to kill David. As a price for marrying his daughter Michal, which would have been sort of a customary thing in that day, he says, David, go kill a hundred Philistines for me. Bring back proof that you've done it. He thinks David's going to try and kill a hundred Philistines. He's surely going to die. Well, lo and behold, David brings brings back proof that he's not only killed a hundred Philistines, but two hundred. And again, Saul's afraid of David. And in verse 29, it says, Saul was David's enemy continually. All this leads up to the situation that, that David's in when he writes this psalm, Psalm 59, which is our text this morning. Saul devises a plan with his men to sneak around David's house and to kill him in the morning when he wakes up. But Michal, Saul's daughter and David's wife, warns David what's about to happen. She says, you've got to escape. And David gets away, and she makes this sort of image, almost uh, Ferris Bueller style, with some hair pasted on uh, in the bed, and says, David's sick in the bed, uh, so you can't, uh, uh, can't come in and, and harm him right now. So David escapes. He gets away. And for the rest of Saul's life, David's going to be running and hiding from Saul, who's, the most, again, the most powerful man in Israel, the king, to escape death. It's in this context that David writes... Psalm 59, as a prayer to the Lord. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. And in this psalm, like many others, David sort of acts as our lead worshiper, our worship leader, if you will. Okay? So he calls us, he calls out, sorry, to God in the midst of his situation. He teaches us how to call out to God as well when we have enemies and to worship as he does. David teaches us that when enemies come and we suffer, we can sing out to a God who sees and saves. When enemies come and we suffer, we can sing out to a God who sees and saves. When we're faced with evil and suffering, we, like David, call on God as our refuge and we trust him to punish evil, as we'll see knowing that he will show steadfast love for the good of his people and that he will bring justice to all men. So, so I want us to keep this context in mind as we move through this psalm. And I want us to notice three kind of particular uh, ways that David leads us in worship in the psalm. The first 
Because God is our fortress, we can express our hearts to him in the midst or in the face of enemies. Second, because God is our fortress in the face of enemies, we can trust him to avenge. He is the one who avenges, and we trust him to do that. Third, because God is our fortress in the face of enemies, we hope in him. So first, we can express our hearts, really our very selves, to God in the face of enemies. David calls out aloud to God for deliverance from these enemies who are looking to kill him. He says, deliver me from my enemies again. Oh, my God, protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. Here, David uses sort of a familiar structure or pattern in the Psalms where he pleads with God to deliver him and to save him. His enemies are rising up against him, but he asks that God save him. He asks that God lift him higher than his enemies, in a sense, so they cannot rise up against him. He describes his enemies as those who work evil and bloodthirsty. There's men who are eager to kill him. And in verse 3, David says that they lie in wait for him and stir up strife against him. I'm going to move around, by the way, a lot in the passage, so if you have your Bibles in front of you, that would be helpful. They lie in wait for him and stir up strife against him for no transgression of his. Now, it's always odd for us as evangelicals to read passages like this where David claims his innocence. David's not saying here that he's without sin. We know clearly from other Psalms that David acknowledges his sin before God and repents. But what he's saying is, is that he's, he's in an unjust situation. He's pleading God, with God about the injustice of the situation that's happening. It's not because of something that I've done that I've got enemies pressing against me. This is unjust. This is wrongful for them to do. So again, the king of Israel, the most powerful man in all of Israel, earnestly seeking death, David's death, not because of something David's done, but because of his own jealousy, Saul's own jealousy. This is deeply unjust persecution. By the way, we notice that as Christians... It's not really a question of if we're going to suffer things like this. It's a question of when. This is something that we see throughout the Bible, and Psalm 59 sort of just assumes it, but I want to touch on it, because it's a song for Israel and us to sing in times of suffering due to our enemies. It assumes that we will have those times. This is all over the Bible. I'm just going to mention a couple examples. First Peter 4 tells us that Christians should not be surprised at the fiery trials that come into our lives, but to rejoice as we share in Christ's sufferings. Paul says something similar to the Philippians, for he has granted to you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but also of suffering for him. James talks about conflicts and disputes in the church, and he says these conflicts come because of cravings and desires that are at war within us. And then he says, those who wish to become friends of this world become enemies of God. If this is true, then if we're going to be friends of God, we shouldn't get too comfortable in the world. In fact, we should expect the world to treat us as enemies. Finally, Jesus says things like, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they'll persecute you. Unless we think that we are greater than Jesus, then surely they'll persecute us as well. He also says in Matthew 10 that you will be hated by all because of my name. So if the world hated Jesus, the world will hate his disciples. We live in a desperately broken and fallen world. We'll talk more about that in a second. And yet we have the spirit of God living in us. 
And if there's not a deep conflict between someone who has the Spirit of God living in them, who's still living in a desperately broken and fallen world, then we should be concerned. Paul Brand was a surgeon uh, who made great advances in fighting the disease uh, of leprosy. And he spent the early years of his career in India, and then he moved back to uh, the United States. And he said this, In the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Christians living in American society will be tempted to live like Americans tend to want to live. Americans want to do everything to become as comfortable as possible or to to get rid of the possibility of suffering coming or enemies coming. But when we do this, we're really loving the world more than what God tells us to shape ourselves as. I'm not saying that Christians, as Christians, we should go out and seek conflict, but I'm saying that if our relationships are comfortable and peaceful all the time, then we may need to do some self-evaluation. Do I have any relationships with non-believers? Do I ever share the gospel? Do I actually live out the commands of God in my everyday life? Am I seeking out those in pain and suffering to love them and to learn from them? Living out the Christian life is really difficult, partially because we know from God's word that enemies will come. It's assumed. This is a part of what allows a Christian to sing this psalm with David. So if we're going to be the type of people that sing this psalm with David, then we need to look at our lives and think, am I living as a Christian in a way that the Bible expects me to live, which, which expects that, that suffering will come, enemies will come. So, back to the psalm, what does David say to God about his suffering? Verse 4, he says, wake up! Awake! He looks around at what's happening and thinks, I know God is powerful to defeat powerful men. I know God's the most powerful on earth. He just helped me to defeat the Goliath, in fact. I know that Saul, this powerful king, is seeking my death for wrongful things. He's doing wrong. So what's happening, Lord? Are you sleeping? Sometimes it feels like God has fallen asleep. Do you ever feel like this? Maybe you feel like God has taken a break or that he's focusing on other things right now. Maybe you've prayed consistently for a child or a family member's salvation for years, earnestly asking God would bring them to faith. But they're unmoved. You know that God is powerful enough to save why hasn't he done it? Is he asleep? Is he focusing on other things? Or you've tried to break the sin habit in your own life, the addiction or behavior that you just can't shake. You know a God, God is a God who breaks chains, but he hasn't set you free yet. You still return to that sin. God, are you asleep? We'll see throughout the psalm that David does see God as his faithful helper. He does see God as his shield. He does see God as the one who's awake and will come to him. But yet, before he expresses these truths about God, he calls on God to wake up. And as long as sin still reigns on this earth, we will feel this tension. We know that God is our helper and our fortress and that he's strong enough to do anything, but we continue to experience suffering and pain and sin and the effects of the fall. Enemies continue to come against us. What David shows us is that it's right for us to express this frustration and this confusion to God. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and God knows that. 
He created the world good, and our sin and rebellion has messed up that goodness. So not only do we ourselves sin, but others sin against us in ways that are unjust and wrong. Oh God, that you would rise up and come to save us. Oh God, that you would wake up and come to save us. This is David's prayer. Some of the great Christian hymns and songs that give voice to this kind of experience have been written in times of great suffering because suffering actually helps us to express our hearts to God. Think of Horatio Spafford, who wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Spafford wrote this hymn after his four daughters, who were all riding on the same ship, died at sea as their vessels shipwrecked. And think of spirituals written in the midst of deep, unjust suffering of slavery. We mentioned many more, but the reality is that the suffering church in new ways. The suffering of the church gives voice to our worship in new ways. Like David, we can call out to God to awake, come and meet us and see. In doing this, we acknowledge that we are not right and that we need him to make things right, or things are not right, sorry, and we need him to make things right. If he does not come, then we're without hope, but thank God that he will not leave us. David's very next words, you, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Throughout the Bible, we see God establishing this relationship with his people, and the grand promise of the Bible is that God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And in Exodus 32, we see this, this strange picture where God has rescued Israel from Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, and Moses is up on a mountain for 40 days, and they get impatient, and they make an idol. They go and serve another God. They make another God for themselves. They say, God is fallen asleep, in David's words. But they go the wrong direction. They don't hope in him. So, in response, God comes down. He says, you've created an idol. He says to Moses, now you must go to a land flowing in milk and, with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And Moses' response is amazing. He says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be that I have found favor in your sight, and, I, and, and we are your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on earth. Church, when we cry out to God to wake up, to arouse himself, to save us from our enemies, we aren't just calling to some unknown spirit or to some abstract deity. We're calling out to God Almighty who has promised to be our God the one who makes us a distinct people. And if he does not go with us, then the church has no purpose and we have no purpose. It's only because God has pledged himself to us and has become our God that we're distinct, that we can call out to him as our fortress, the one who help us in time of need. David cries, awake, God. David expresses himself to God in time of trouble. Not only can we be confident in expressing ourselves to God, that he is our God, but we are to express ourselves like this in an ongoing way. We're to do it together. Think about David's own situation. For the years following this psalm, David continues to be haunted by, or hunted by Saul. 
There's not an immediate visible acting from God on his behalf. Saul keeps coming after him. He continues to suffer the consequences of the unjust and evil actions of this powerful man. And yet, he can continue to express to God every part of his heart and his soul, his confusion, his frustration, his anger. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing that you can't bring before God. He knows you in your inmost being. Nothing is hidden from him. And it's healthy and good for us to express these things to God. And it's healthy for us to do this in worship, in a community, together. In this psalm, the choir master is the one who receives the psalm. It says, to the choir master, according to do not destroy. We don't really know what that means, but we think... Do not destroy might be a musical setting or something. But it's to the choir master. We need to sing and pray these things together in worship. And this takes some work. Because we need to know each other in order to be able to sing and pray in this way about our hurts. To sing alongside each other for God's deliverance. The word liturgy, the stuff that we do in the service. So we sing and we pray and we read God's word and we hear the word preached. This liturgy comes from the Greek words to mean work of the people. When we gather together, we work together to praise God rightly. We pray that that means, or we pray to God, and that means crying out together to express our suffering in the face of enemies. And if we don't know each other, if we aren't in each other's lives, then we cannot do that together. On a practical note, this means that we need to be committed to each other as members of this body. It's really easy for us to say, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm called to love everyone. I love everyone, right? It's really hard for us to say, I'm called to love these people sitting in front of me and behind me and next to me. I'm actually going to love the folks around me, right? That gets, that, gets, that gets a lot harder. We're called to do that. We're called to be in each other's lives. We're called to be committed to our church membership vows, which we've taken. And if we aren't members, I challenge you to find a church home. I challenge you to, to become members, to become committed members of this body in each other's life, expressing to God our hurts and our need for him together. So we can express ourselves to God in the face of enemies. But second, David shows us that we must trust God to avenge in the face of enemies. Look at verses 11 through 13. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Two things would keep us from being able to worship with David in this psalm. One is if we ourselves are unjustly treating others. And another is if we're seeking to take justice into our own hands without relying on God. Let's look at the first one first. In my experience, growing up in a middle-class suburban church in North Carolina, we're very quick to incorporate psalms that had to do with God's faithfulness, with repenting of our sin, with God's greatness, with God's law. But we're not so quick to incorporate psalms like this. It's hard for communities that have held power in society to cry out to God asking for justice and retribution against enemies in powerful places who have mistreated us. So for someone like me, it's really important to learn to sing psalms like this because the psalms force me to think about the ways that I might be unjustly treating my neighbors. And often these psalms force me to ask, 
as we saw earlier, why am I not experiencing suffering in the face of enemies in this world? David describes those who treat him unjustly, the enemies in this psalm, as howling dogs who prowl about the city. The Bible does this often, by the way. It portrays wicked or sinful people as becoming less and less human and more and more like animals. When we sin against God and others, we're being deformed away from the image of God as we were created to reflect it. God made us distinct from animals, but we rebel and we reject God, and we, we sort of lose that distinction is what the Psalms say. We're deforming the image of God in us. And the Psalms shape us to, to desire not to be people like that, not to be the ones who are unjustly treating others, not to be the enemies, but to be those who can cry out to God in the face of enemies. We don't want to be the bloodthirsty hounds outside the city who don't think anyone can hear them. So when we read this psalm, we're forced to think about the ways that we might be unjustly treating others. Are we the ones misusing power to hurt those around us? Are we unfairly paying employees? Are we charging way too much interest to those who borrow from us? Are we treating men and women each with dignity and respect, and not in a way that seeks to gratify our desires? But when we worship with David in the psalm, we're also forced to examine whether we're trying to take justice and revenge into our own hands and not relying on God. There's not a hint in this psalm of David taking justice and revenge into his own hands, carrying out vengeance on his enemies himself. He trusts that God will do this. And the amazing thing is that God begin, or David begins to see in verse 12 that their very sin begins to be punishment itself. You see verse 12, for the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. Sin becomes something that is in itself punishment as it deforms us and takes us away from our purpose as human beings. And in verse 13, David asks God to consume them in their wrath till they are no more. On the surface, it seems like he's saying different things in verses 11 to 13. He says, kill them not, in verse 11, lest my people forget, make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. And here, by the way, he's asking God not to kill his enemies immediately. Instead, he wants God to, to kind of draw it out. It's kind of a weird passage. It makes us uncomfortable. So that his people remember. So that his people don't forget. Remember earlier, David complained to God that his enemies were rising up against him. So he asks here that God will bring them down. They were rising up. He calls on God to bring them down. And this is to kind of serve as an object lesson for Israel or for us that we don't forget what God has done. We don't forget who God is. But how does this square with verse 13, where David asks God to consume them in his wrath? Here David looks ahead to the day when the wrath of God will destroy all things that keep this world from functioning the way he created it to be. Again, these are uncomfortable verses for us, but we have to, we have to look at them and pray them with David. All those who continue to rebel will be consumed. All things that cause pain and fear and death will be consumed until they are no more. A holy and a good God cannot tolerate the things that continue to afflict his people continuing to exist. The holy and good God will make all things right. So David calls out to God that he would take vengeance and that he would show his justice by getting rid of this evil and not letting those who do evil off the hook. How do we square this with Jesus' teaching on loving our enemy? It's a tough one. We pray to God with David that he brings justice and vengeance on our enemies, and at the same time, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. I'm going to say just three really brief things. First, 
As we've seen, David looks to God as the one who brings about revenge and not to himself. We, st- we see David act this thing out when he encounters Saul later in 1 Samuel. Saul finds him in a, or, well, Saul's looking for him and, and walks into a cave to relieve himself. And David happens to be in that cave. Saul is hunting him and David's men urge him. This is your opportunity. God's given him into your hand. Your opportunity to kill him, to be out of this mess. Well, what does David do? He goes and cuts off a piece of Saul's cloak. He says, I'm not going to harm God's anointed. And then two chapters later, same thing happens. David comes into Saul's camp while he's sleeping, and he has an opportunity to kill him. And he says, I will not harm God's anointed. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid it that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed. David refuses to carry out vengeance because he trusts God. Even if Saul lives on to pursue him, even if his life is more difficult, David does not take vengeance into his own hands, but trusts God. Second, loving our enemies doesn't mean embracing the injustice of wrongful acts. And it certainly doesn't mean that we keep from crying out to God in frustration, as all the Psalms uh, do, to frustrate the plans of those who continually act sinfully. As Christians, we should fervently seek to root out sin anywhere that we can. This means killing sin in our own lives. One theologian says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Strong words. And it also means working against the plans of those who are sinning and treating people unjustly, hoping that they come to know Jesus and will be changed, but also praying that the Lord would stop their unjust ways. Loving our enemies actually involves praying for the utter removal of sin and rebellion even as we pray for our enemy's salvation, and even as we do not repay evil for evil. I don't love my children best by allowing them to do whatever they want or laying down like a doormat. I discipline them in love because I desire that they would know and follow Jesus as disciples. Right? In the same way, we pray that God would continue to work against evil in this world and that the world might know and follow him as disciples. And third, when we think about loving our enemies in this psalm, David prays against his enemies that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. David desires that God work against the sinfulness and the rebellion and the injustice on earth so that all the earth might know him. That's the purpose. So that all the earth might know him. The glory of God is at the forefront of David's mind here. And the glory of God is more fully displayed if the enemies who have been oppressing David come to know God in his reign. They will either know him through becoming a part of his family or they will know that he rules over everything in the dreadful reality that they are still rebelling. But God wants his enemies, David not wants his enemies, sorry, to know that God rules over all. This is certainly love for your enemies. And finally, we can express ourselves to God in the face of enemies. We trust God as the avenger in the face of enemies. And we hope in God in the face of enemies. We hope in God because God is our fortress. In the middle and the end of the psalm, David sings beautifully about who God is and the hope that we have in him. Look first at verses 8 through 10. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. He's talking here about the enemies of David. You laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. In the midst of the psalm, David sings out in confidence to God. The Lord laughs at the enemies of David because their earthly power is no match for his might. 
and he will bring their power to nothing. Notice the change in the description of the enemies from verses 6 to 7 to verses 14 and 15. If you don't have it in front of you. Uh, verses 6 to 7 talk about the dogs, uh, the enemies as dogs. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are bellowing with their mouths with swords in their lips for who they think will hear us. They're confident. They've got swords in their lips. They're rash. And then in verses 14 and 15, the same sort of image. But notice the difference. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. All of a sudden, the dogs who were confident and rash in the first image are wandering about for food. They're growling because they can't get their fill. When David remembers who God is, when he remembers that God is his shield, that God is more powerful, that God laughs at his enemies, all of a sudden the enemies become impotent. They become powerless. David watches for the Lord who is his strength. And the Lord laughs at those who do evil. They're not even a concern to him when it comes to power. David is confident that God will let him look in triumph on his enemies. So when David remembers who God is and where his hope is, his enemies turn from powerful predators into sorry scavengers. And then in verses 16 and 17, the climax of the psalm, the end of the psalm, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. Why can we hope in God? Two reasons. He's a fortress and refuge in our distress. And he shows us steadfast love. First, he's a fortress and a refuge in our distress. Listen to the names that God, David use, uses for God throughout the psalm. My God, Lord, Lord, God of hosts, God of Israel, my strength, my fortress, my refuge, the God who knows me, the God of steadfast love. David beautifully sings of God's power and his ability to save, of his closeness too. Not only has God a mighty fortress, but he's a fortress that David has invited has been invited into for refuge. David sees that God is able to save. He also sees that he's willing to save. And notice the change from the verses in the middle of the passage to the end. In verse 9, David had said, Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. Now in verse 17, David says, Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. He watched for God's faithfulness to come, and now he sings praises because he knows of his faithfulness. We also hope in God because he shows us steadfast love. We've seen that David is kind of a worship leader in this psalm, but there's someone who can sing this very same song even more truly than David. Deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Can you see Jesus Christ praying deeply, pouring out his heart to the Father as he's about to be killed so that we might live? Save me from bloodthirsty men, can you see the crowd chanting, crucify him? When Pilate suggests his innocence, the crowd says, his blood be on us and on our children. They're bloodthirsty for the death of Jesus, but little do they know that his blood will be enough to cover all of their sins. And we find ourselves in another place in this psalm, by the way, because Paul says that we were enemies of God. We were hostile to him. 
Saul made himself an enemy of God through his actions. And we made ourselves enemies of God. Certainly, if anyone deserves to die, it is us who had rebelled against our good creator. But Jesus came and entered into our world. And he died the death that we deserve so that we might praise him through his saving blood, his blood that is upon us. And we pray that his blood is also upon our children as we testified to baptism, baptism in this morning, as the crowd ironically said. We might be able to come to the other side of the psalm uh, if we trust in the Lord. We will be able to come to the other side of the psalm and we might be able to say with David and now with Jesus, crying out to a God who shows us steadfast love, that he is our God. For no transgression of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Who can sing this song more truly than Jesus, the holy, innocent one who was put to death? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Can you see Jesus standing before Pilate, the governor of the Roman world, one of the most powerful people in the region? And Pilate thinks he has authority over Christ. He says, do you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus looks back, laughing at him in derision. He says, oh no, you would have authority over me. You have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. And can you see the disciples facing what seems to be sure death and panicking on a boat at sea with a fierce storm raging all around them? And they go to Jesus, who's sleeping through all of this, and they say, save us, Lord. And he gets up. And he says, why are you afraid? He rebukes the wind and the sea, and he brings great calm, says Matthew. The very one who has experienced most truly and can lead us most fully in singing Psalm 59, Jesus, is also the one who we sing this psalm to. He is the one who we cry out like the disciples to, to say, come awake, Lord, help us. Wake up. He is the God who is our fortress and our refuge in our distress, the God who shows us steadfast love. Let us then pray and sing to this God that we might be strengthened and that all the earth might know that God reigns among his people. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we call out to you. We pray that you would make us people who are able to sing with David and with Jesus this psalm. Pray that you would shape us into the, these kinds of people. Pray that you would shape us through our worship and our prayer. We pray that you would help us to see you as our hope. Help us to see you as our avenger. And help us to express ourselves to you in our, our deepest thoughts, even the thoughts we're deeply ashamed of. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that. You are our shield. You are the one who is faithful to us. You are our God, help us to act as your people. In Lord Jesus' name we pray, amen.